0: This episode is dedicated to our friend Chief. We miss you, buddy. the season three. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George and I'm Jeff. And you know,
1: we get a lot of emails sometimes <laughs> about certain things. But the last episode where we talked about kitchen cabaret, I can't even tell you how many emails and Facebook messages and tweets I got from people about tone lock.
0: Okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. I understand. Well, It's you know, Tone Loke. Yeah, I did try to come to your defense because he got the name from a recording, a mixing board. Yes. Where it would say Tone L-O-C. And it really stood for Tone Lock because that's what you would do. And he chose to be Tone Loke because I guess that sounds that's cool. That's not my fault. Listen,
1: I didn't listen to early 90s rap unless it was the digital underground. So... Anything outside of <laughs> Tupac Shakira, I have no idea. <laughs> Great, I'm gonna what? get more emails. I'm just now. kidding. It's Tupac. <laughs> Nobody send us emails. Nobody. No, sent no, an we email. want emails. I mean, yeah, send an email, but not about that. But not about that. Anyway, yeah. in, I will never say your, Tone Loke incorrectly ever again. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't say Fud Ropper. I I almost did. No, we should go back and we should, and it's, it's we should th- George th- Lucas that episode and change it. <laughs> That's exactly what <laughs> we then, should do. And then
0: Disney will buy it in twenty years and restore it to its original form. We can only hope. Let's
1: hope. We can only hope. Well, we're going to return back to our World's Fair history segments this week. So uh, let's let's jump into it.
0: It's the fiftieth anniversary of the sixty-four World's Fair.
1: So as we're traveling back to look at the 1964-65 New York's World's Fair, I feel like there is a lot of information out there for a lot of the Disney pavilions, such as, (laughs) you know, It's a Small World, and for uh, Progress Land, and, uh, you know, Carousel of Progress as it's known today, and even Great Moments of Mr. Lincoln, because those are three attractions that still exist uh, today in Disney theme parks. But the one World's Fair show put on by Disney that has the least amount of information about it is the Ford Magic Skyway. Uh, and that's because the ride was never really recreated after the fair in any form. So, of course, that one is the hardest one to research. Um, but I, I found so much that we're, we're going to split this one up into two parts. So we're going to be looking at the development of it today uh, this, for this episode. And next week we'll be looking at the installation and some of the problems they faced with it there. Um, But, you know, we can really date the beginnings of the pavilion itself back to when General Motors was meeting with Disney about creating an exhibit for their World's Fair pavilion because there was a time where they were in talks for it. And they spent a lot of time together and they had a lot of various meetings, but eventually GM pretty much said, well, I I think we can handle this on our own. Thanks anyway. And they walked away. And uh, Disney wasn't too happy about that. Uh, and GM basically told them, you know, some of those other pavilions are having a hard time. You should probably, you should probably ask them. Like uh, People like Ford. Ford's struggling. You should ask them. So Disney kind of, in spite of uh, General Motors, they actually did go to Ford to ask them if they needed any help with their pavilion.
0: Yeah, so in 1960, Henry Ford II visited Disneyland and Wed Enterprises, and he began negotiations for Disney to produce their World's Fair show. Now, one of the earliest mentions of one of these meetings between Disney and Ford was recalled by Don Egrin. He said that in one of the very first meetings, people were going around the table introducing themselves. The Ford people were saying, this is Mr. Jones, this is Mr. Smith, and so on before Walt stopped them and requested that they follow the Disney tradition of calling everyone by their first names. And it seemed like they were never allowed to do that before, so they were all happy and got their first real taste of Disney magic. I really like how you change your
1: voice there to simulate, you know, stuffy executives talking that's, to That's people. what they all sound like. In your head or, or in reality? In real life. Oh, okay. In real life. Thanks, George. You got it. So, after all the contracts were signed and negotiations were done that Disney and Ford were going to work together, uh, of course, with a clause in it that all Disney employees would fly first class as per Walt's request, um, Ford sent uh, the Imagineers John Hench, Don Edren, Vic Green, and Marty Scalar all around the country to visit the different aspects of the Ford Company. Uh, that way, so they would get to know the Ford Company inside and out and to begin gathering some ideas for the pavilion. And as the ideas started to pour in, Ford requested a feature uh, from their exhibit at the 1939-1940s World Fair be included in the new pavilion as well.
0: At the 1939 World's Fair, people rode inside Ford vehicles as part of the attraction, and, and they felt that if they got people into cars, they were more likely to make a sale. They even wanted to have a salesman in the car with the guests to act as a chauffeur and to help sell the idea of Ford cars to people. Uh, Walt agreed to the car idea, of course, but suggested that the cars be automated and drive through the attraction on their own, much like the Disneyland dark rides. Ford loved that idea even more and set out to create a system in order to do that. But since they hired WED to design the pavilion for them, Walt felt it should be their job to create it. So this was kind of the very beginnings of the Wedway people mover system. So
1: while watching uh, the the cars that people built through uh, a system of rollers in in the factory, the initial idea uh, came up of how this could work. So they used motorized wheels with uh, some tweaks to the original idea from, that was used on the assembly line, and they used some cars uh, loaned by Ford, actually, to test the system out. And that, that was kind of like the forerunner to the People Mover, and it was successfully tested uh, in November 1961. And it kind of worked so well that it was determined that they can actually run two tracks next to each other in order to uh, increase the capacity
0: for the entire attraction. With the ride system in place, uh, ideas for the actual attraction itself started to come up. One idea that John Hench, Herb Ryman, and Dirk Irvine came up with was the Symphony of America. The ride was to take its guests through major attractions of the United States—the national parks, the Everglades, and so on. Concept art was drawn up, and a major presentation was prepared for Ford. At the end of the presentation, Henry Ford II said, don't you know you see the USA in a Chevrolet? Which of course was the popular slogan for the, at the time for Chevy. So that idea was quickly declined. So even
1: though they were a little bit discouraged, the Imagineers went right back to the drawing board and they came up with a new idea. And they figured the people at Ford kind of wanted something bigger and better than a trip through America. So instead, they came up with an idea for a trip through time itself. Now. I almost es- made the noise. What, the TARDIS noise?
0: The, no, our Communicore
1: weekly patented time travel. Oh, oh I understand. I see what you almost <laughs> did there. But you didn't. Way yes, to go. Restraint. Thank you. Thank you for showing restraint. And now that I just interrupted you, we out where you we were. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> traveling through time itself. So, the, the new historical journey would begin in the prehistoric era, and it would progress through the dawn of man, and then onto the discovery of fire, and then the invention of the wheel. And the idea itself was approved and work set out for it right away. And so, you know, the concept sketches soon gave way to scale models, which soon moved on to the actual production of the scenes themselves. However, WED at the time had to be really, really careful because one of the contract stipulations with Ford was that absolute secrecy needed to be maintained. Um, So extra locks were added onto the building, and fire marshals were even diverted away from the area where they were working on the show, uh, just to keep it secret, because they didn't want any people from General Motors or any other car companies that had pavilions to steal their
0: ideas. Well, thank goodness the pavilion did not catch on fire. No, that would have been bad would have been bad. Okay, so while this was going on, things were getting awfully crowded in the shop due to all the products being worked on, and because of this, Walt insisted that they needed to have more room. Walt looked into some space at the site of the former Glendale Airport, which the city had turned into an industrial park. Soon, they were renting a building at 800 Sonora Street, which Imagineers affectionately refer to as the Pancake House, because that's what it looked like. The new location allowed for more creativity for the Ford Pavilion in a lot of ways because the ideas to help plus it became even grander after the move.
1: The International House of Imagineers. That's what they should have called it. Aihoi. No, never mind. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, as they were working there were a lot of ideas that the Imagineers came up with that would have been really amazing but they were quickly killed by Ford. Um, One of the ideas that Walt himself actually came up with was to have this kind of grand and majestic waterfall on the outside of the pavilion. And he wanted to cascade down the sides and onto uh, the big glass tunnels that Ford cars would be traveling through to get into the attraction itself. And, you know, even after Ford declined that idea the first time around, Walt kind of decided to continue working on it in secret just in case they came around to the idea. Um, However, the budget... include that was kind of out of control, and there was a lot of water restrictions in New York City at the time, so that idea unfortunately never came to be. And then they had another idea, was to have a kind of assembly line visible to the guests while they were waiting in the queue, and have all these car parts that were being passed along, and the car parts would eventually come together in the loading area to kind of give the illusion that the ride vehicles were just fresh off the assembly line. But again, because of budget, that idea was kind of uh, put to the wayside also.
0: What's that classic Imagineering, Marty Sklar line that a good idea is never thrown away? It's always, it's just put on the shelf and... And recycled later. later? Yep. Okay. That, that That's all I'll say. Nothing else. Okay. Well, another grand idea was, that, uh, was what to show after the invention of the wheel. Concepts were drawn up to show vignettes of America at the turn of the century, and then during the Roaring Twenties, and then on to the future, out into space, with Venus being a destination for the citizens of the universe. Even in just short segments, this idea appeared to be too large of a task, so it was shelved in favor of an easier idea. The time tunnels, or speed tunnels as we would know them, that would be used at the beginning of the show to take guests into the past would be employed again, this time to bring people directly into the future, into Space City, since space travel was at a fever pitch at that time.
1: Now, this space city had its root in the popular science fiction from the 1940s and 1950s at the time, which had a very pulpy look to it. It had, like, uh, towering spires and futuristic buildings and these gigantic gleaming domes. And the idea behind it was that Ford had brought us physically into the future, both uh, through the time tunnels and through their products. And, of course, this future, in a lot of ways, represented what Walt really wanted for his original idea for Epcot. And it was the future, but it was Walt's version of the future, what he wanted it to be, and it was definitely a grand one.
0: Now, while the Magic Skyway was the central attraction for the Ford Pavilion, their contract with Disney was that they designed shows for the rest of the the Pavilion as well, including the product display areas and the queue. The queue shows were known as ramp shows, Uh, One of the most remembered ramp shows was the Car Parts Orchestra, known as Auto Parts Harmonic, created by Rolly Crump and Bob Gurr. Walt wanted an orchestra, and that was all the direction that Crump received. So along with Gurr, the two of them went through a car parts catalog, finding parts that resembled bits of instruments, and created a 13-piece orchestra that would play on its own and entertain the crowd. So, Ford
1: also wanted to show that they were an international company. So, at the front entrance of the pavilion, it was decided that a miniature village of sorts would be on display. And Walt's thinking was to do something kind of like Tivoli Gardens has, which worked out really well, and he really wanted something very similar to that. Ford, on the other hand, wanted to display uh, some of their cars as opposed to a little miniature village. So, they kind of came up with a compromise. So, they showcased 11 different countries with scenes ranging from the past to the present, uh, and then next to each of these miniature models with it was a full-scale production model of a Ford car manufactured or distributed uh, in that country, uh, so it, it kind of did go hand-in-hand.
0: Hand. And another ramp show consisted of showing off Ford's diverse history. Rolly Crump was giving this task as well and decided to take the four cars that Ford was really known for and made them into fun vignettes. Uh, there was another fun mirror illusion that would show the 15 million Model Ts that Ford produced. Not all the ramp shows had to deal directly with the cars, though. One was a mural designed by John Hench that showcased the heart of the 1960s science, engineering, architecture, and space. So
1: that kind of wraps up the uh, production part of it. So next week we will go into how, you know, how the presentation went, the installation, and all that fun stuff. So check back for that one.
0: A cliffhanger? Yes. Hmm. He's a, he's a nerd, he's a geek,
1: but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. Ah! It's George's book of the week.
0: This week's book is Deep Blue by Jennifer Donnelly. Deep Blue. Okay, sea? So, yes, yes. It's the. It's all about Nemo and. Fi- no, no. Of course not. This is not about the uh, giant chess-playing computer or that lost little clownfish. And honestly, uh, or the Samuel Jackson movie. Was that called Deep Blue? Deep Blue Sea. Oh, that's right. I thought you were talking about, like, in the great... Never mind. No,
1: no, no. Deep Blue Sea. No, the,
0: the Little Nemo song. The Finding Nemo song. Somewhere Beyond the Sea? No, nah, never mind. I'm very confused. That, that show at the Half Day Park? The Big Blue World? That's it. That's it. You're the worst. It was terrible. You're I know. it was worst. going really bad for Chuck. Anyway, so... This is an interesting young adult release from Disney, and you know I'm not sure if I would have enjoyed a book about a chess playing computer anymore. But we won't get into that right now. Um, this is something that Disney's working on, and they're hoping that it's going to, uh, not a direct quote, but they're hoping it's going to ignite the teen world on fire. But we'll see. Good thing so, it takes place underwater, then. Uh, huh? Exactly. So it'll be okay. So that no, was I the worst. I'm so sorry. Uh, it's yeah, we're we're over two right now. Um, I I did accept a review copy of the first book in what's called the Waterfire Saga. There you go again, Waterfire, I'm not sure. Uh, It it sounded to me like it might have a Harry Potter-like feel, and I knew that Disney was throwing a lot of muscle behind the book. And as I found out later, the Waterfire Saga is going to be huge, Uh, a multifaceted publishing venture that will have four books, several graphic novels, and a few other surprises. So. This is something that you know might be turned into a movie or something else, maybe even a Lego video game? Huh? Ah, who knows. Okay. Well, the premise behind Deep Blue is not your normal dystopian fiction that you get with a lot of teen literature today like Divergent or The Hunger Games, and it, it really seemed to skew more towards the younger teen audience. After finishing it, I would really feel comfortable recommending this title to tweens that were making their first jump into the world of young adult fiction. And most of the central themes really fall around friendships, family, and, and first love. Uh, you know. And obviously, not my regular type of reading, but I was willing to give it a try. Okay, so first up, there is a 12-page dictionary of terms that really, really, really should have been in the front of the book and not in the last few pages. I had no idea it was there, and I found myself struggling with a lot of the character names and phrases That really didn't have a clear definition, and even from the context of the sentence, I couldn't tell what it was about. And and from a publishing standpoint, yeah, it makes sense to have it at the end of the book, and that way you get readers hooked. But it's, you know, Disney has created a new universe, and it's not really a very simple universe. We were introduced to Serafina, who is a young Merle, which is Mermaid Girl. The dude from uh, The Walking Dead? That's it, yeah. <laughs> I guess I don't watch. I that am so confused scary. by this review right now. I know, I know. Um, it, so Serafina is about to go through a series of trials to see if she is the next in line to rule rule the Merfolk Kingdom, and it's a it's a pretty convoluted story that's introduced quickly with a little room, barely any room to breathe. There are a few tenants that are set up. David tenant? Uh, I'm going to stop. Yeah, I, I knew swear. that was coming. I'm going to stop now. I changed my words. but So they have a few rules that are set up that include the ability to cast spells by singing. And, of course, there are a few different ruling families that try to coexist. Uh, Serafina Sarah is betrothed to a young merman that she hasn't seen in years. And she's been beleaguered by dreams of merle witches that are calling out to her and five other merls. Okay. And during her trials, which includes an audience of her family, um, her best friend and thousands of other merfolk, tragedy strikes that leads her on a chase through the, un, through the known seas to find answers in any hope that she can. Okay, honestly, the story was pretty compelling and it's full of little minor cliffhangers. And there are points that are quite suspenseful and we'll keep you up a little bit late to see what happened. And it's definitely in the James Patterson style of very short chapters, that leave you hanging it's not bad but it's not great literature either the story does dip into feelings of ting angst and confusion you know throw in a few love interests and you have a, sort of a gateway book to the Twilight series which you know I'm not a big fan and, and I can see how it's leaning towards a Harry Potter like universe but it just doesn't carry the same charm of JK Rowling's works and you know the bottom line is I enjoyed reading the book uh, especially when the characters started learning about the history of their culture and the quest for which they've been chosen. But the, you know, the smatterings of teen love, you know, put all that aside, I found the character slightly more dimensional than most books in those genres, especially once I got past the odd language and the rules of the world. And I think, uh, you know, parents could buy this book for teens. They'll enjoy the series, especially if they need to stay away from the Twilight books. And the one thing I learned when I was doing my research is before Disney even hired Jennifer Donnelly to write this, they created a 200-page Bible, so to speak, about the um, deep blue universe. So they really went at this as how can we make money off of this? They're
1: really trying to create a franchise out of this yes. it seems, even yes, before
0: franchise. someone mm-hmm. came aboard to write it. Exactly, and they got a fairly popular young adult author who's had some mild success and you know, the book was good. It's not my cup of tea, um, but if you know, If you've got a teen that's looking for a summer read, it's something I think they could enjoy and they could get into, especially if you take them to the beach or if they read it at the Seas with Nemo and Friends and go hang out with the um, manatees. Uh, this week's book is Deep Blue by Jennifer Donnelly. Why that just went off a cliff. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week.
1: Cartography Masterworks, Sam McKim, Mapmaker maker to the kingdom, there's magic in the details. Now, Sam McKim were, was a former child actor who started to work for WED Enterprises in 1954. Now, he painted these amazing inspirational concept sketches for the Golden Horseshoe, the Carousel of Progress, the Haunted Mansion, and a lot more. But, he's probably most well known for his Disneyland souvenir maps, which were sold between 1958 and 1964. And although he retired in 1987, he actually came back in 1992 to create a souvenir map for Disneyland Paris. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey,
0: look what's that? It's a 5 like-
1: Now, on the storyteller statue at Disney California Adventure, Walt is holding a piece of his luggage, which represents what he took to California with him. Now, on that luggage is a tag for the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, and on it is a claim number with uh, the number 12501, and that is actually a reference to Walt's birthday of December 5th, 1901. I
0: really thought it was going to be a Magical Express pickup tag. It could have been a Magical Express pickup tag. Really what it should have been. It would have made so much more sense. And what a great synergistic tie-in. Yeah, yeah. I,
1: don't, I you don't, know. well, I mean, we don't have really Magical Express here. So, That's I mean, it would make me. less sense here than it would at Walt Disney World. But I can yeah. see what you're saying. Have you checked the statue lately to see if it's got a magic band? If they uh, one? I have not checked to see if it has a magic band. Uh, if it doesn't, I'll just go put one on.
0: <laughs> leave it like that's sort of like the dark mark yeah so it's like oh well okay before this gets any worse we'll, we'll end the any show any more
1: worse any more than worse it, than it could possibly
0: be yes okay well everybody thank you so much for watching and listening to
1: another episode yes please be sure to leave us a comment read us on itunes you know
0: all that fun stuff mm-hmm. Email us at weekly at gmail.com and, and correct our pronunciation because we do love that so but much. But mostly Jeff's because he is <laughs> the worst,
1: clearly. I don't think you've ever gotten an email about correcting your pronunciation of anything before. It's only been something I have said. Either people, uh, people must
0: not be paying attention to me.
1: Oh, so you're saying they're paying attention to me. That's probably all it is. Okay, yeah. fair enough. I'll I accept that. I, that. I like that one. <laughs> Be sure to like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CommuniCore Weekly. Yep, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imagine Nerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbach. And of course, you can call us on the CommuniCore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628.
0: Yep, and be sure to pick up your copy of CommuniCore Weekly, the musical. It is awesome, and it's available at CD Baby, Amazon, iTunes, and on spotify you can listen to it for free on spotify i listen to it at work all the time yes we do well i do too but uh, it could get too confusing anyway yep. for jeff heimbuck i'm
1: george taylor and for george taylor i'm jeff heimbuck thanks so much for listening guys we'll see you next time on Communicore weekly the greatest online show